you need to know that this is the third sermon on this passage. And so some of this may not make sense to you. And that's because this is the third sermon on this passage. Let me just read a little section here out of Mark 1, starting in verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, and they, oh, for they were fishermen. Come and follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he'd gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in the boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Um, the, the feedback I got from my sermon last week was, whoa, tiger, um, both in terms of the amount of content and the speed. And so what I want to do this morning is go back and drill down a little bit more into the second thing I talked about last week, which was what's the meaning of the kingdom of God, what that means for us, and why that matters, okay? <clears throat> last week, what I, what I talked about was Jesus comes and he announces that the kingdom of God is near. And he does not expand upon that. He simply tells us the application or the implication of the fact that the kingdom of God is near. He says, therefore, what you need to be doing in response to the fact that the kingdom of God is near is what? Repent and believe this good news that the kingdom of God is near. Now, the, the problem that that brings for people oftentimes is that it's a little bit ambiguous. What exactly does Jesus mean by the, good, the kingdom of God is near? And what I, one of the things I said last week was that it has, it has brought up some confusion as to exactly what that means, because you can take it a couple of different ways. Um, when Jesus says the kingdom of God is near, does that signify that there is the, the kingdom has come and it's going to overtake history? So if you were going to draw it, you might draw it like this. You've got, you've got Jesus, he comes on the scene, right? There's Jesus. And then you've got, you've got here's, the, here's the kingdom. So this, that's the kingdom. And so now that he's coming to history, the kingdom is near in that it's going to grow. The complete rule and reign of God is, is coming into history. It's near, meaning it's happening right now. And Jesus is making it happen, and he has come to take us and give, and through his example and through his teaching, he's going to bring about the good society, the good life, the good people that we've always wanted, that every ideological person has ever dreamt up, and he's going to bring it into the world. And he's going to create this church that is going to grow to be everybody, and we're going to have this wonderful thing happen in the world, and so heaven will basically come down to earth, that God's will, like it is in heaven, will be done on earth that way, okay? Now that's, that's, it could mean that. Now there's another thing it could mean. It could mean that the kingdom of God is coming really soon, relatively speaking, right? Jesus has come, and the kingdom of God is going to come in where God completely rules and reigns. And some people are in a position where that is actually really bad news. That's not good news. Because when the rightful king returns, those who are his an treasonous antagonists are not going to be in a good position. So the good news is, is that God has sent a herald before his army. So that there is a period where his 
treasonous antagonists can willingly become part of the kingdom. And that's the good news. Because the king doesn't have to send a herald. He can just send an army. And he can just destroy everybody who decided they hated his guts. But the good news could be, could mean, right? That instead of doing that, he sent somebody with news first to say, hey, the kingdom is coming, it's near. But before it comes, because this is bad news for you, let's let it become good news. And here's how it could become good news. Repent and believe the gospel. Acknowledge and accept the king so that when his kingdom fully comes in, it is the most joyful news you've ever heard instead of the news that makes you want to hide under a rock somewhere because you are so terrified that the rightful king who you have hated is now king, right? And so the question is, which one is it? Um, now, one of the things I said, I, said, I said last week is, you, you might feel like, well, why can't it sort of be both? I mean, if, if, um, if, if Jesus is coming and getting people back on side, why wouldn't that make for a great society, right? Why can't it be both? Well, and one of the things I said was, whenever you've got two ideas you're trying to bring together in the human mind, one of them always has to have priority, Otherwise, you'll always slip towards the, the one that's the easiest or the most self-interested, right? It's always going to happen. So, you, so even, if, even if it's going to be both, and I think to a certain extent it's both, to a certain extent, the question is which idea takes priority? Which is Jesus doing? <clears throat> and I think that you can answer that by looking at two questions. The one is what kind of message is the gospel? The second is what kind of people is it addressed to? Okay, so for example, one of the, the metaphors that constantly gets used in the New Testament is the, is the metaphor of a king, right? And so if a king went out to battle, I can never find the markers once I get going. So let's say this is a king's homeland, okay? That's his homeland. And out here, there's an invading army that's coming to attack it, right? And so it's the king's responsibility to go and fight, right? And so he does. He takes his army and he goes out and he fights this army. Now he's either going, there's two, there's two options, right? He's either going to drive them back or he's not, right? He's going to win or they're going to break through. Now, if he wins, what's going to happen? If he wins, he's going to send a messenger back to tell the kingdom about the victory. He's going to send a herald. And the herald is going to bring news. And that news is going to be good news, which is where we get the word gospel. Right? The gospel is the good... The good angel, the good news, the good messenger. It's the good message. That's where we get the word gospel. It's good news that gets sent back. Now, it, what hap- but what happens if the king fails? Now, if the king fails, he doesn't send back good newsers. He sends back advisors. Why? Because these people are going to have to fight for their lives. And so the best he can send them is somebody who's going to tell them how to do it. And so the, 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 a very fundamental question we have to ask is, which of these kinds of message is the gospel Jesus has come to preach? Has he come to preach a gospel of advice? Meaning, I'm not going to make the kingdom. You're going to make the kingdom. 
And here's how you're going to do it. You're going to look to me as an example, and you're going to obey my good moral teachings. You're going to embody them in the society through whatever means you can. And then through that, you're going to get, you're going to defeat the enemy of social, personal wickedness, and you're going to have a great society. It's advice. You're going to win. You're going to fight. It's your job. I'm going to send you advice so that you can fight for your lives. Is it that kind of message, or is it this kind of message? Is it the message where Jesus says, I'm, I have already won a victory. It's already done. The thing that you long for has happened already. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you about it so that you can live in light of that fact. Now, I think it's really evident from Scripture— that it's this message, this kind of message, not this kind of message. That Jesus' message is not a message of personal and social moral improvement, but it is a message of reconciliation between us and God. That's what it is. And there's a, there's a, couple, a couple ways that we can see that, but one of the things, one of the assumptions, I think, that comes from the fact that most people presume it's this— is that we still think that we're pretty good people. That's what this really comes back to, is that we really don't like the doctrine of depravity. If somebody asks us if we're a good or a bad person, what do we say? We say something like, well, I'm not perfect, right? We say something like that. I was reading a Christian children's book at a conference I went to this weekend, and this little boy learned a lesson, and it said, now he's still not perfect, right? But Here's the thing. If, some, if, you, if you say to me, I'm not perfect, you better plan on the next words coming out of my mouth being, are you close? <laughs> the, the, the gospel is built on the notion that we are not pretty decent but a little confused people. That if we're pretty good— um, then Jesus can come and give us some advice and a little bit of an example, and we'll go, oh yeah, oh of course, and build a great society. And the problems of the world will go away because, gosh, you know, you're right. If we just obey the golden rule, that's really all it takes, right? That's, Jesus, you're, you just have a way of saying these cheeky little things that just change everything, right? I mean, that's, that's insane, okay? The, the problem is, in Scripture, everywhere, that we hate what God has to tell us. We hate it. We want nothing to do with this king. We do not want to submit. We do not want to follow. We do not want to—that we are very— very wicked. And the things that we don't know morally are because we won't know them. We will not know them. And therefore, we are not this sort of like, oh, huh, people that we can get a little advice and we can morally improve the world. The scripture teaches that we are actually radically sinful people and that a huge part of our radical sinfulness is our, we have wired our own minds to deceive ourselves into thinking we're pretty good and, but not quite perfect. That's part of the confusion of our radical rebellion against God. Right? And so Jesus is coming in and he's dealing with that. You see, if you, if you think that we're decent people, then all we need is advice. And so it makes perfect sense that Jesus would give us some nice advice. We could take some of that advice— and we could make a 
a little bit better society, and that's what Christianity is all about, and so you can take it or leave it. It's just about making things a little better. Or you can believe that the king is returning as the victor, and that unless we recognize we need to believe his messenger, we essentially are part of this army that he went out to destroy. That that's our real standing. And the good news is, is that this king that went out to fight knows that we sent support to that army to kill him. He knows it. And he has sent us a messenger to say, you know that army that you supplied weapons and money to that came to kill me? I defeated them. And I want you to know that I know, and I want you to know that I'm willing for you to be my subject. And I'm willing to care for you and love you and protect you and be the king you've always wanted. Or, let me say it this way, you should have always wanted. That's what Jesus has come to do. And one of the ways we can see that is when he, when he hands off his work, what, is he, what kind of work does he hand off? Does he hand off his work to social engineering bureaucrats? He does not. And listen, my brother's a social engineering bureaucrat. I think social engineering bureaucrats are really important, okay? So don't, I'm not saying that, I'm, I'm gonna talk about how this is not a political message a little bit later. But what I, I, what I need to make very clear is that that's not Jesus' message. Jesus' message, when he, when he hands off his work, he doesn't hand it off to social engineering bureaucrats. He hands his message off to other heralds. Jesus comes as the herald and the savior, and he passes off the herald work, but he completes the savior work. And so there's a, a group of people that come after him, and everybody who comes after him only get basically one job, the job of herald. Everybody who comes after him is this guy that comes back to this humanity and tells them the message that the king is coming, and that could be really good news for you instead of really bad news for you. If you would repent, change your mind, and change your path, and believe in him. I think the clearest parable for this is Matthew 13, 24, that talks about what the kingdom of God is like. And, and Jesus says, it's kind of like a field where there's wheat that's planted, and there's weeds that are planted, and they grow up together. And then at the end, we cut it down and sort them out. That that's what this period of time is like. It's one of the clearest parables that tells the difference between these two. That this is a heralding time we're in right now. Where the two kinds of things are growing together. And we're to encourage the growth of wheat and discourage the growth of weeds. But the, the cutting and burning and splitting and putting one in the barn and one in the fire, that work is yet to be done. We're not doing that work, right? Another example is in Luke 19, where there's this parable about a guy who has a vineyard. He, he builds this vineyard, and, and it's, not like, it, it's not like it says he's a rich kid, and so he buys some land, and then he makes people work on it. it. It's intentionally not told that way. Jesus says there's this guy, and he buys the vineyard, and he builds a tower, and he cuts a wine press, and he digs a well, and he plants a thing, and then he gets tenants to come and work the easy work, because he's done all the hard work already, and he gives it to them. And then what is he? And then at the, at the, when the season of picking comes, he sends messengers to get a part of it that he deserves as the ruler of the vineyard. Meanwhile, he's gone away to be made king by the, by the big king of that area. He's going to become a regional ruler. And so these people tell the messenger they can't have any goods, and they send a letter to the big king not to make this guy the little king over them. So we don't want this guy's king. 
And so meanwhile, while this guy's away being crowned king of this region, he keeps sending messengers to them, and they beat up on some of them, and then finally they kill a few of them, and he finally says, listen, I'm going to give one more chance. I'm going to send my son, because hopefully they will recognize they should respect him, and we can sort this out. And so he sends his son, and they kill the son. And Jesus says, what do you think is going to happen? What, what, do you th- what, what should happen? This, this man who has gone away is their rightful king. They have intentionally and treasonously tried to undermine him being crowned king. They have stolen his vineyard that he built with his own hands that he has the right of creation over. They have been warned lots of times. They have demonstrated the hardness of their heart by neglect, violence, and murder— What do you think is going to happen when the king returns? And Jesus is very explicit. He's going to say, haul these people out and execute them in front of me. And and the point there is, is that Jesus is saying, there is a period of time in which messengers get sent to wicked people by good leaders. And and the the more loving, the, the more... Opportunity. There's, there's all this opportunity. One of the things that really ought to strike us in that story is all of the opportunity given. But at some point, the king returns. And when the king returns, if you didn't take the opportunity, well, it's a bad day. Opportunities do end. And so there's, there's a number of parables that say this is the, the way the kingdom is talked about. And also, when, it, when the Bible refers to what the world is going to turn out like, There's a number of places in the Bible that talk about the way the world is going to turn out. And you know what? They're not really optimistic pictures. There's nowhere in the Bible that would give you the notion that things, that because Jesus has created the church, things on earth are going to get better and better and better and better. And eventually Jesus is going to come back to this fantastic kingdom and just step up on the throne. There is no scripture anywhere in the New Testament that would lead us to believe that. In fact, there are scriptures that explicitly state the opposite. So the question is, do you have the right to make up your religion? Or are we supposed to look at what Scripture tells us and then figure out where to go from there? Now, there's a bunch more I want to say on that. Um, But I won't. What I want to drill down into a little bit more today is, why does that matter? If I'm going to linger for two weeks on the doctrine of the kingdom, it's not just because it's going to come up 12 times in Mark and we're going to have to talk about it. That's not the reason. The reason is, is that if we, these are totally different understandings of what Christianity is all about. And so we need to say, what difference does this make in how I'm going to parent this week, how I'm going to be a spouse this week, how I'm going to be a student this week, how I'm going to be a a child responding to a parent this week, how I'm going to be a widow this week, how 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 am I going to deal with my business problems, how is how I'm going to relate to the world going to be changed based on understanding the gospel this way and not this way, the kingdom this way and not this way. I want to give you um, first four negative examples of what this means. Okay, so so here's the four problems that will be created if we think the kingdom is basically a kingdom of Jesus' advice and example. Here's Here's the problems this will create. The first is, is that we as a people will not be able to help trying to win. We will be trying to win. 
And this is exactly what our liberal neighbors, our very secular, liberal, big L, politically neighbors are terrified about in relationship to us. This is why you get this sense of terror in relationship to evangelicals among a number of people that are very secular in their outlook of society. They're terrified that if there's too many of us and we get too organized, what are we going to do? We're going to take over and create a theocracy in which um, it's going to be illegal to drink beer and have fun and probably chew gum and, you know, wear clothes that aren't black or white, you know? Which is ridiculous, but, but, um, there is another group of people in the world who believe in another religion for whom this is fairly true. Um, Islam as a religion is not basically a theology. It's a cultural brotherhood in which a certain kind of order is embedded. And so if you look at a place like Indonesia and the Philippines, these are countries that have lots and lots of people. They're not majority Muslim, right? But if you you look at them historically, and when the Muslim population hit 48, 49%, all of a sudden what happened? There was an enormous amount of social unrest. Why? Why? Well, it's it's because there was this attempt to, to change the culture. The political order needed to change. And it's not necessarily because Muslims are violent people. They're not more violent than you. We're, we're, all, we're all wicked, right? We all are bent on us. Ha- I mean, we're not, they're more wicked than we are, but built into the idea of Islam is a, an order in the world. Winning. You cannot read the Quran and not get that sense that winning is important, Right? It's very hard to read the New Testament without this idea that Jesus is constantly trying to get you killed. Right? I mean, just everywhere in the New Testament, you're like, what? Jesus, what are you, what are you doing? He's like, yeah, I'm going to get you killed. You know, and you're like, I want to be a winner. Come on. And so what will happen is we will try through all kinds of different means to take control. And we'll try to get to 50%. We'll try to get this little block and we'll try to get control. And our Non-Christian secular neighbors will be rightly terrified of what could happen um, if we get control. And here's the thing, that, that sh- we will lose track of the idea that we are meant to simply persuade people to repent and believe and enter the kingdom. It's our job. So f- for us to win, well, here's, here's what winning is for Christians, to per- freely persuade everybody we can to freely choose to repent and believe that the king is going to come into his kingdom and that that could be good news. That's it. But you see, if we think that Jesus has given us this advice and our main job is to create a beautiful utopian kingdom, we can, how could you not understand that politically, structurally, and legally? Those are the means to that end, and we have to take the reins of those means. But if that's not our job, if our job is primarily to build a kingdom, a city of God, irregardless of the city of man, in which people are freely persuaded to follow the king, then the terror that Christians could destroy the world will be misplaced. So if we believe our gospel, not only can our neighbors relax, but we can actually do our job. Now, I'm not saying that won't have any political effect at all. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that's not what this is primarily about, is it? But that is a mistake we'll make. The second one is 
we'll get distracted from people and focus on structures and ideologies. What will happen is we will choose to give lip service to movements and ideologies instead of actually helping our neighbors sacrificially with our real time and money. That's what will happen. We will either get pulled into the liberal notion that people are basically good and therefore need good structures for a good society, or a more Darwinistic view that people are essentially animalistic and need to be controlled and caged for their own good and health. And we will then implant that in the structures of society and we'll buy into that as Christians. Why? Because we want a better society. That's the view we buy into. And so we'll get co-opted into that view. Now listen, say the same thing for political conservatives. We get just— you could, you could buy into the conservative notion where people essentially need to be forced into a radically accountable system where they either succeed or fail clearly. This discipline will make for a productive and prosperous society, and a good society is a free society in which, uh, in which people can compete for prosperity. That's the good society. And we can say, oh yeah, yeah, that'll make the good society. So if we're trying to make a good society, Jesus wants us to get on the Republican bandwagon. You see, you, you can go either way politically with this. Okay, this is not a, this is not a, oh, don't be a Democrat, or oh, oh, don't be a Republican. It's neither of those. It's that what happens when we think in terms of this, we will always move towards ideologies instead of towards our actual neighbor. That's why Chesterton said, when this was happening in Britain decades ago, he said, this is why I'm always made nervous by people who tell me they love humanity instead of that they love their neighbor, Sam. Because what I see in the world is people doing the worst things ever that have ever been done have been done by people who protest that they love humanity. This, this, the very center of Hitler's ideology was his love for the German people. And in his mind, I believe he's totally convinced in his own mind, what he did, he did for love of the German people. Mao loved the Chinese people. He would have the Chinese people live in brotherhood. And the fact that tens of millions of people starved to death and how he attempted to do that, that didn't stop him. Why? Because he loved the people, not that person who starved to death. Same thing with Stalin, exactly the same. And we will do that. We will, in, in little cosms, we will move towards an ideology and we will say, well, I'm socially engaged because I voted. When meanwhile, we have an actual neighbor who is an actual single mom who actually can't get off work till five and we could totally take her kid from school when we get ours from 3.15 to 5.15 and it never occurs to us to offer because, well, we're engaged in the development and benefit of the world because I voted for that Democrat last election or I voted for that Republican or I did this or that. And Sam and Alice and Jim and Bill and Aaron and Sarah never are touched by the transformative work of the kingdom because we are so focused on ideologies because we're busy building the great society instead of being heralds for the personal transformation of the gospel that makes new kingdom people that act like they belong to a heavenly kingdom, not the city of men where they're trying to get control. You believe in that notion, we will get co-opted. It's just who co-opts us. I'm not passionate about that. <laughs> Third, we will be tempted to adjust our message. If we believe this notion, 
And we believe that therefore to be spiritually successful, we have to be social change successful. We will be tempted to change our message based on what we think the social people will accept, whatever the culture we're in. So if we're in Madison, we'll talk about Jesus' doctrine of forgiveness, right? Because our liberal neighbors will love that, right? But we'll never talk about Jesus' doctrines on sex. Because they won't love that. <laughs> they won't. So what will happen? Jesus will be all about bringing forgiveness and, and bringing people who, you know, bring race reconciliation, personal reconciliation, political reconciliation, social reconciliation. We'll talk all about that. That'll be our gospel. And we will say nothing about what they don't want to hear about because we're try- we have to win. We have to persuade them. We can't just simply be a herald of the message. We will adjust the message because we're aiming at a goal that Jesus never gave us. And then lastly, we'll be discouraged more easily. Um, and, and, and when I say this about attempting to change our message, this doesn't just work here. You see, the minute we send a missionary to Saudi Arabia, what's he going to do? See, over there, they love the idea, the idea of the Christian idea of sex, don't they? Very conservative, they like that, but they don't like, they don't like our doctrine of forgiveness for the most part in that culture. You see, wherever you go, you'll be tempted to make a different kind of change and not preach the whole thing, not offer the message of the kingdom in its entirety, but it'll be, in some way, we will adjust the message. Fourthly is we'll get discouraged more easily. You're gonna, you're gonna see that you're not winning. What's gonna happen to you? If you think you're going to be triumphant and you're not, like scores of Christian generations before you, what's going to happen to your resolve? Your ability to overcome, your psychological readiness, how emotionally fragile you are. Little boys and girls who are told they're winners and that they're constantly going to win, what happens to them when they don't win? Well, they're too emotionally fragile to deal with the conflict. And they implode, and that's why you get all these articles about how hard it is to employ people under 40 in America. Because you constantly have to hold their hand and tell them that they're perfect because their mommies practically worship them. They're the most emotionally fragile generation the country's ever known, and I'm one of them. And, I, and it's true. It's true. And this is what's going to happen. We think we're going to win spiritually. What's that going to do? It's going to create spiritually fragile Christians. Where when our church doesn't grow fast enough, or people don't come in fast enough, or the election doesn't go the way we want it to, or when all these things kind of happen that we don't like, we're going to be too emotionally fragile to handle that because we say, oh, we're losing. Oh, Jesus must not really be Lord. No, Jesus said, listen, I lost. You're going to lose. Everybody loses. Who follows me? That's how it goes until I come crashing in right at the end. how it works. So then let's ask three quick critical questions about application. One is how heavenly minded should we be? Um, that there it is. How heavenly minded? Okay. Have you ever heard the phrase, he's too heavenly minded to be any earthly good? Have you heard that phrase? Okay. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Okay. But it's built on this notion that, um, which is believed by a lot of fundamentalists and conservative Christians, right? Uh, which is, he- where I'm going to get heaven, right? So and he- here's where we're most susceptible to this as evangelicals, is in the area of environmentalism and conservationism. 
well, this whole earth's just going to get burned and remade by Jesus. I mean, why, don't, why not pull all the coal we can out of it? I mean, who cares if there's climate change or whatever change, if the fish are dying or what, there's no frogs anymore. I mean, who cares? I mean, Jesus, eventually Jesus is going to come back and if we poison the whole thing so we all die, well, that basically is Armageddon. And it'll, it'll speed Jesus coming. <laughs> you know? So it's either preach the gospel to the ends of the earth or kill ourselves with pollutions and poisons and Jesus will return. Um, because I'm going to heaven. I, why would I care about this place when I'm going to heaven? And it's going to be fantastic. Now, th- there's a certain logic to that, right? And I'm sure that there really are people in wit who really don't care about anybody else or anything else because they just think they're going to heaven and their life is pretty good and that's it. So there's some logic to that. But here, here's, here's my experience, okay? My experience is that when I wake up in the morning, I don't believe in Jesus as much every single morning as every single other morning, okay? I don't, have you, I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but I may wake up this morning and just be just 100% absolutely sure that the risen Jesus sits at the right hand of God is presently advocating for me, and I can go out and get myself killed for Jesus today because I could not believe more. And by Thursday, I could be, you know, in the fetal position, like, I don't want to get out of bed. I'm still a Christian, but my emotional state isn't necessarily the same every single day. I'm Italian. So... The Germans have no idea, and the Dutch people have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, But here's what I find. The days when I am most susceptible to going out and buying something to make me feel better, or um, to look at a whole bunch of porn on my computer, or to treat my wife like she's there to serve me and I'm not there to serve her, or to not spend any time with my kids because I really just want some downtime for the whole night. Um, and all those kinds, of, the, the, the days when I'm prone to act like Jesus isn't Lord are the days um, when I least believe. When my, my certainty that I am raised with Christ is lowest. I sin is strongest when my belief in heaven is weakest. Okay? Now, what keeps me from sacrificially serving the world around me is my personal fear that Christ has not made a home for me. That this life is all I have left. And the reason we don't serve is not because we believe in heaven. It's because we don't believe in heaven. The reason we spend our money on ourselves and spend our time on ourselves and the the reason we don't serve more than anybody else is because we really think this is it. And we do not want to be sidetracked from doing stuff for ourselves and feeling good about ourselves and doing what we like because we are terrified there isn't a heaven and we better get all we can right now and I'm not going to be— I, I, I'll let you outserve me because I don't want to get a less better deal than you on this whole gig. And you might be able to guilt me into a little bit of service, but listen, I'm not laying it down because I am terrified that this is it. I think that it is Christian practical atheism that feigns belief in heaven that kills the real transforming work of the gospel in the world. That's what I think. Because when I, the day that I believe that there is a heaven, that there is a Christ in it, that I am purchased by the gospel, that I am united with Christ, that I am filled with the Spirit, that I have an eternal home with Jesus. I could care less if you take my home, you take my family, you take anything from me. You cannot stop. I'm ready to do anything because I cannot lose anything. You can't even, you can't even kill me. I'd be like, well, I, my wife is going to be really upset at you. 
Um, but whatever, dude. I mean, I can't stop it. And to live to, is to Christ to die is gain. It is when that vision of heaven that Christ has made goes away, I'm terrified. I will do nothing for you. I won't make the smallest sacrifice. I will not wash eight dishes that have been sitting in the sink for three days for my wife when it's not even her job. Because I do not want to do anything for anyone else. I don't even love my family, much less give my money that the gospel would be preached or lives would be saved anywhere in the world or my time. I would submit to you that the more heavenly-minded, otherworldly-minded we are, the more earthly good we are. And if we will forget the notion that Jesus is going to build utopia and just know that there is a city of God that we have not yet seen that we will dwell in forever, we will then be ready to not live as selfishly as anybody else. We will be ready to give our lives. And I would submit to you that until Jesus saves your life, you will never be ready emotionally to give your life. But when you know that Jesus has taken care of every need of yours, you can actually be released to take care of the needs of your neighbor. And I think that this is exactly the argument of Colossians 1, 3, 1 to 6. This is what Paul says. He's talking to the church. He says, since then, you, so he's talked about all about how they're saved, how Christ is amazing. He says, since then, you have been raised with Christ Set your hearts on things above, right? He says, be heavenly-minded. Put your heart, put all of your emotions on Christ above where he is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, right? Not your car, not your promotion, not your pretty or handsome spouse, not your kids who you just are so sure are going to turn out well or will someday turn out well, but Christ who is your life. When he appears, not creates the kingdom over time, that he, when he appears, you also will appear with him in glory. And then what's the implication of being that heavenly-minded? Therefore what? Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, right? Sexual morality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming into the world. Right? The second is, why is knowing we will fail and lose good for us? Why is knowing we will fail and lose good for us? If we know we're going to lose, one, we can resist the temptation to grab power. And we can do something else besides wait in the wings for the moment when we can grab power. We won't give up on our neighbor because we can't change our, our culture or rule the government. The, our, our project isn't taking over. Our project is our neighbor. The person we're pointed to is the actual human being next to us. And that's what we'll more easily focus on. But I think that at the heart of this is persevering losers are people of remarkable grit who can do remarkable good. 
okay? The weakest people in the world are quitting losers, right? They lose, they quit. They're behind, they quit. You know, have you ever been on a sports team with the, that guy who once you're down by two goals, he doesn't even really play anymore? Right? I mean, I'll slide tackle that guy on my team. Like, that's ridiculous. Like, I, I cannot stand people who quit before the game is over. I will, I will throw myself in front of the goal if we're down by five goals and there's two minutes left, okay? Like, I, you play, you leave it on the field. I hate losing. If we're down by five goals, let's try to lose by four instead of five. We're, this is not over, okay? It's not over. And I just cannot stand quitting losers, right? Right? But Jesus loves them, right? Jesus loves quitting losers and wants to save them. But they're the weakest people, right? Plain observation, they're the weakest people, okay? Now, the second weakest people are winners. Winners are the second weakest people because they win. So their grit isn't as tested because they win, right? The most gritty people are the people who lose and keep playing, and you cannot get them to quit. No matter how much you beat them up, no matter how many goals you score, no matter what you do, they just keep coming for you. It's, it's like, and it's often said among coaches, it's very hard to beat a team three times in a row if you play them three times in a season. So it's, this is very well known among soccer and, and hockey and some other. Um, it, you, you beat a team twice, you just make them mad. If they're players. Now, some teams, they'll just roll over again for you. But there's some teams, you beat them, tw- you beat them, you beat them five to one, you beat them three to nothing. But you be careful that third time because they are coming for you. And I've gone into games where I, we have beat a team more than once. We have not been beaten by them. And I'm nervous because I know they, do, they are not planning on losing again. They are going to fight to the bitter end. And, if, and, and they will not, even if we beat them 3-1 this time, doesn't matter. They are going to fight to the bitter end because persevering losers are the most gritty people there are. Right? And, and here's one of the reasons why. They have stopped being motivated by winning. And now they have nothing to lose. They're just going to fight to the end. And you, know, you need to be careful with people like that. Okay? In, in one sense, you need to be wise about people you know who have nothing to lose. But think about this spiritually. When you know you are not going to win, when you realize we are among the Cubs fans of the world, okay? We are not Yankees fans. We are Cubs fans. We are not going to win. It's not going to happen. But we are going to go to the game, and every time they hit the ball and don't get out, we are going to yell. And we are going to cheer. And if we hit a home run, we're going to act like that's important. And we're going to be like, woo! And we're going to buy tickets, because one out of every seven or eight games, they are going to win. And that is, we, we are not going away. You, come, you can come to our field, you can be up nine games, and you straight, we'll taunt you. Because we struck you out then. And see, when, we, when we, you realize we are not going to win, and we have not been given the job to win, we have given the jo- been given the job to believe ourselves and to become heralds of the message that by believing and repenting, anyone can become a member of the kingdom can belong to Christ, can be raised with him in heaven, can have an eternal hope, cannot be counted among the traitors and antagonizers of the one great king. 
and we herald that to as many people as possible, and then a new community is created of those people in which we do the will of God on earth as best we can, and we allow that to have the social impact that it has, because it will have social impact. And we recognize that we're, we're going to fight because we fight, not because we win. We will never stop fighting. We will be the grittiest people in the world, and we will be the kind of people who do the right thing for the right reason. Do you follow the king because you're going to win, or do you follow the king because he suffered and died and lost on your behalf, and now you, out of gratitude and joy, are willing to suffer, lose, and die in following him? Why do we do what we do? And then lastly, what's our main task? Our main task as the church is to help people enter the kingdom by receiving forgiveness of sins through repentance and faith in King Jesus. That's our job. That job will have many implications. Many of them will be social. Many of them will be social. We may end up on the forefront of things that happen politically or things that happen socially because of how we live out that calling. But that will not be what we're grasping for. Our priority, what we primarily will be doing, is announcing the kingdom, announcing a new life, and announcing what we can be and have in Christ the King who's come to announce the victory of the Master. And if we recognize that, we'll realize that we all are heralds. Every single one of us has been given the work of Jesus. Mark did not include Jesus calling these fishermen so that you would go, oh, Jesus called apostles, isn't that interesting? He included that in several other passages of him calling people to become heralds so that you would recognize you are Peter in that passage. You are James and John. He is, he is calling you to be a herald as well. First to believe, then to be a herald, and then he's calling you to be part of the new community of heralds, the church. Right? The church is the new community of people living in the city of God, parallel to the city of man, not trying to take it over, but being the visible kingdom on earth as a heralding sign to everybody around us. This is what it would look like to belong to the king. This is what it would look like to do the will of the king. This is what it would look like if you became his and you were part of whatever can be visible of what he's doing and you were part of it right now. This is what it would look like. This community. And then out of that, we would recognize that just like Jesus did some miracles so that his message would go forward, because his miracles and his message were very similar, we'll see that Jesus wants us to do certain works in the world, to save lives, to help people, to feed the hungry, to do these kinds of things, because, just because God has made a loving people. Because you can say, well, you know, Nick, it would be very dishonest if we, you know, if we fed people and helped people because we really wanted to preach the gospel to them. Well, no, that wouldn't be dishonest unless we lied about it. But secondly, what do you think everybody else is doing when they do good works? Most of them are just pushing their ideology with the other hand too. What do you, what do you think all these other people doing this stuff are doing? I mean, the fact is, is that everybody who does that does it for some reason, 
and they think that that reason is relevant to humanity. The reason we do it is because Christ has saved us. And we think that that's relevant to everybody who we work to to save their life or their well-being. There's nothing dishonest about it, and there's nothing evil about it, and there's nothing manipulative about it. If we did not preach the gospel with the saving of lives and well-being, we would be dishonest. And we shouldn't let people intellectually intimidate us that that's somehow wrong when they turn around and do the exact same thing with their ideology and want us to shut our mouths. So let me just end with this. Jesus has announced his kingdom. It is for you. It's for everybody, people near, people far. It is for those right here in this church. It's for everybody in the city. It's for everybody in the state, country, world. He has announced that the king is coming, that his full kingdom will come in, that he is the rightful king, that no matter how we try and duck and dodge and move and protest and try to put him in an emotional situation where he'd feel bad about being mean to us, the rightful king is coming in. And this could be good news if you would accept him as king if you would turn from your sins, if you would accept him as Lord. And the work you will receive if you do that is the work of a herald. And the, and the identity of being part of his visible kingdom in the local church. And through being a herald and being part of the church and believing the gospel, that is how we live out the kingdom. Until he comes. Father, we pray that you would help us to be a people persuaded by your word about what the kingdom is and what the gospel is and not what people would tell us or co-opt us into. We pray that, Father, you would make us a gritty people, a people who are doing the right thing for the right reason and cannot be dissuaded or pushed around and who, do it with, who act with all kinds of tenacity, but the thing we do with tenacity is love. Out of faith because of your risen greatness. We pray that you would form us and that our minds would be set on things above and not on the things of the earth and that by being heavenly minded, we would be of great earthly good. Pray in Christ's name, amen.